And um, those first round knockoffs are always kind of a big deal. And it's called March Madness. And, you know, when I'm watching two teams, I have no idea which one is which, or I know very little to nothing about them. I usually will just cheer for the underdog, you know? It's kind of fun to see someone that's supposed to not be as well-funded or as, as talented or whatever beat someone that has some, some respect and some position and some talent of some sort. Um, when this is talked about in the financial world, we call it rags to riches. A rags to riches story is someone who was homeless or raised in poverty or had very, very little, $5 to their name on the street corner kind of thing, but they worked hard and they, you know, innovated and they saved and they scrimped and they put together a business and now they're very wealthy. We call that a rags to riches. That's an underdog story. <clears throat> Jesus has a rags to riches story. But actually, it's a riches to rags to riches story. And we've looked last week at how he, being in heaven, did not hold on to his full exercise of deity, but he became a human. He lowered himself even to death, even the death of the cross. So last week we, uh, I keep saying last week, I guess it's been several weeks ago. No, I was here last Wednesday. It was last week. Um, two weeks ago I wasn't here. But he... Um, he left heaven, that's the riches, and he came down to the death of the cross there in the tomb. But in verse 9, where we pick up tonight, we find the rest of the story. Verse 9 says this, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. This name above every name. This is the name that Jesus has in heaven, a name above every name. You know, the Bible says that one day when we see Christ, that he will have a name written on his thigh. And at present, we don't know what this name is. Currently, we just speak of Jesus and of Jesus Christ, and there are certain names in the Bible for him. But the Bible says one day we'll know this name of his, and he's been given this special high and holy name. We shouldn't be surprised at this outcome. Because the scripture elsewhere tells us as sinners, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Also James 4.10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. And if it's true of sinners, and if it's true of regular uh, people like us, then certainly it's going to be true of the Lord Jesus that if he humbled himself as he did, that he would one day be exalted. And the Bible says God has highly exalted him. And so the lowering and the humbling and the, the weakness and the struggle that he went through as he was on earth has now all changed. And he has been exalted and lifted high above all other people. You know, when he was on the cross, he was the lowest of the low. He was the criminal. The Bible says they spit on him. The Bible says they mocked him. The Bible says that uh, people challenged him and called him names and they reviled him. And yet, Jesus has gone from that to now being exalted in heaven. He is the highest in heaven. The angels adore him. The, uh, the world is his footstool now, the Bible says. And Jesus sits on the throne. He is exalted high above. He's been given a name that is above every name 
so often the name and the way a name is used speaks of respect or disrespect, right? And today, the name of Jesus is used as a curse word and is used in cursing and in foul language sometimes. But the Bible here says that Jesus has a name that is above every name. The name of the Lord Jesus should be special to us if we have his name put on us and if we have been saved by him. The name of Jesus, the name above every name. We could really go looking through the scripture and talk about the different names of the Lord Jesus. But the point is, is that now Jesus is exalted. He is treasured, he is valued, and he is given a place of prominence. And currently, people may mock the name of Christ. They may use it in curse words or in bad ways. But the Bible says something different is coming. Verse 10 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Wow. So in other words, there's coming a day where that won't be the, play, that won't be the case. There's coming a day where the mocking and the misuse of Jesus' name will end. And at that day, every knee, every person will will bow at the name of Jesus. I wonder if it will be this name that is above every name, this special name that will be used. Maybe he will be just declared to be Jesus or the Son of God. I don't know how it will be presented at that day, but the Bible says every knee will bow. This is a quotation from Isaiah 45. And in Isaiah 45, verse 23, the Lord says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Isaiah 45, 23. In other words, every person that you see, every person in the news that you read about, every person in history that you've ever heard about, their knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Your knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow. You know, I've, I've used this uh, text as I converse with Jehovah's Witnesses. And Jehovah's Witnesses um, treat Jesus as a created being, and he's not God, and they say that we shouldn't worship him. And I just say that one day they will worship him and they will bow their knee and they'll declare that Jesus is Lord. And um, it's true of all people that we meet. And so the most boastful person you meet, the most humble person you meet, all people will bow at the name of Jesus Christ. This Sunday, I referenced this, this verse, this past Sunday, I referenced this verse in relation to Jesus saying, I will draw all men to myself. And I said that one way or another, every person will be drawn to Christ, either in saving faith or in judgment. Every person will be drawn to Jesus. And the passage here says that there's coming a day where everyone bows to him. But notice the categories that are given. Look at these with me. It says, of things in heaven. Now that shouldn't surprise us too much. Of course, the things in heaven are going to bow at the name of Jesus, right? Let's, let's think about what's in heaven. What is it that's up there? Angels? Clear water? Okay, we got clear water in heaven. What else is in heaven? What were you going to say, Emma? 
The golden path. That's right. The golden street. Did you have your hand? Yes. God's throne is in heaven, right? And all these different things are in heaven. But it says everything that is in heaven will bow the knee to Jesus. And it uses the word things. You might expect the word people or, you know, something along those lines. But it says things. And this word in in the original King James is italicized. So so the idea is simply that there's um, every knee will bow in earth, in heaven, under the earth, etc., every knee. Well, you might say, well, humans have knees, you know. What about the animals? Well, the Bible does talk about animals in heaven. There's beasts. There's, um, there's creatures that have beast-like features. Maybe they're angels. Maybe they're created beings. But I would imagine that they, too, if they have knees, that they would bow. So the, all, everything that's in heaven is going to bow at the name of Jesus. But now it says things in earth. Things in earth. And here, we, we certainly would immediately think of people, right? The people will bow their knee. But uh, if, if at that time, whenever this time comes, there are animals, I wonder if the animals will bow their knee as well and bow down before the Lord. I don't know that for sure. But everything that is in earth will bow to the Lord. But then what is the final category? Things under the earth. Things under the earth. Now, you might think of like buried dead people. That are things under the earth. Well, that's a good thought, except that at this point, probably everyone's been resurrected. So it's probably not a reference to dead people per se. Although there is a place that sometimes is called under the earth that is a reference to hell. And it also may refer to simply the spiritual underworld of where the demons exist as well. And the demonic forces and the demonic powers and those who are condemned to hell to suffer punishment, they too will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And everything that has ever been created will bow the knee to Christ and will say, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Hitler will say it. Stalin will say it. Trump will say it. Obama will say it. The CEO will say it. The janitor will say it. Those in Africa and Asia will say it. People of all times will say, Jesus is Lord. And the one who humbled himself from heaven and was cast aside as a criminal and was spit and mocked upon, he has now been exalted. And the the full exaltation has not even taken place because one day it will all come full circle and everyone will say, Jesus is Lord. Lord. This day is coming. You say, when is this day? Well, it appears to me that it would, it would have to be at the, um, either at the beginning or the end of the millennial reign, is, is my guess. Um, if, if this is including every single thing, it would have to include Satan, right? It would have to include Satan. And so I tend to think that this is at the very end of the kingdom, as Satan is about to be cast into hell all the world of that time, that world that Jesus has reigned for a thousand years, all those in hell, all those having been judged, will declare Jesus is Lord. That day is coming, and it's going to happen. It's kind of, it's, 
as we think about Christ, our example, he came down and now he has been exalted. For us, what does this mean for us? Well, I, I think it certainly means that it's foolish to live in pride because for all people, there's coming a moment of humility when we'll bow the knee to Jesus, right? All people will bow to Jesus. So the lesson, I think, for us in regards to pride is I should bow my knee to Jesus now. Today, I should bow my knee and my heart to Jesus and say, Jesus is Lord now. You know what that word Lord means? What does the word Lord mean? Creator? Well, that's a good guess. That's kind of the idea, but not exactly. Anyone else? What does the word Lord mean? Savior? That's kind of the idea, but not even, it's even a little more specific than that. Yes, has the idea of master, a position of power or leadership. Master. And, and sometimes in the Bible, Lord means Jehovah, and it's a reference to deity. But usually, when we see that, it's in all capitalized, all capitalized letters in our Bible. But otherwise, it's that idea of master. And here in this text about humility and pride, about being submissive to others and so on, the idea is that all of creation says Jesus is master. You know, some people are happy to have Jesus as savior, but they are not happy to have Jesus as master. You know that? That, that makes a little bit of sense because to have Jesus as savior just involves you receiving his gift, right? That's a, a receiving but when you have Jesus as master, that means that you're giving Jesus something, right? In salvation, we receive, but in sanctification, we give or we yield, if you will, over to the Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is master. This is who Jesus is. So this leads us right then to verse 12 and 13. 12 and 13 says this, Therefore, because of this, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In these two verses, we have some really interesting and helpful truths, but I want us to see how they connect to what we have just learned. Verse 12 says, therefore, and that means based upon what we've just looked at, you should do this. Based upon this, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. So the, the, the main verb, the main push of this verse is work out your own salvation. Therefore, work out your own salvation. And he's saying, because of the work of Christ, his humility, our call to be humble, to be unified, we need to work out our own salvation. That word salvation means deliverance. It means rescue. It means deliverance. And we always ask the question then, deliverance from what? Um, what, what do we mean by this deliverance? Well, in the context of verses 2, uh, or verse 1 through 4, 1 through 5, if you will, he's talking about them being, walking in humility and how they shouldn't be of pride and how they should be unified and this church was having some struggle with disagreement and Paul is pointing them to the path 
to being delivered from their pride, to being delivered from this disagreement that's breaking up the unity of the church. And he goes on to say, for instance, in verse 14, do all things without murmurings and arguments, you know. So he's still continuing the theme that he's already begun. And he says, if you want to be delivered, you have to work out your own deliverance with fear and trembling. And remember that it is God who works in you. This full picture is that when humility is being taught, there's a sense in which God works in us to help us be humble. But there's another piece of humility that can only be done by us. Humble yourselves under the mighty hands of God. We need to work out our own salvation. That idea of deliverance and salvation here would be that we have the deliverance we need from sin, don't we? And specifically in this context from pride. Work out the deliverance with fear and trembling. So because of Christ, we have the deliverance from pride. Because of the example of Jesus, we have the deliverance we need from pride. But it is up to us to work it out. Now, when we hear the word workout, what do you think of? When you hear workout, what do you think about? Probably this, right? Somebody lifting weights, probably getting all toned and losing weight or getting, getting ready for a race or something, workout. But this idea of working out has the idea of to produce, to bring about, to achieve or to accomplish or even to create. The idea is to bring it to completion, perhaps. You know, when you, when you talk about working a field, you're going throughout and, and covering the whole space of that field. If you're working out a mine in the mining business, you're, you're getting all of the edges and all of the pieces of that uh, gold or silver or whatever it is that's being mined out of the ground. Taking in that entire capacity. And so Paul says you need to work out this salvation, this deliverance, work it out with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. You know that phrase fear and trembling is used in Ephesians 6, 5. Are you ready for it? Of slaves to their masters. How appropriate in context here that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You know, slaves have a work to do, do they not? And a slave who is realizing they have a master, they are going to be working out the will of that master. But a slave that cares about their own things and is rebellious against the master will do their own thing, right? This deliverance from pride has been given to us, but we must work out this deliverance, put it into practice, put it into uh, display in our life. And he does say, work out your own salvation. Very personal. Um, you can't work out someone else's deliverance. You have to work out your own. And one final word about fear that's very important. A fear and a fear of God. It, it does have somewhat about what he could do to us in the idea of chastening, but it's more about what we could do to him in the area of displeasure. And I think that's a wonderful way to phrase it. It's not as much about what he could do to us, although that's part of it, but more about what we could do to him, a fear of God. But aren't you thankful for verse 13 as well? For it is God who works in you, 
both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This word for work in verse 13 is different from the word work in verse 12. It's where we get our English word energy from, energeo, energy. And it, it has the idea that God has power within us. He is working in us. God has divine energy at work in us. And he is not content to leave us alone. So he works in us, but we work out our own salvation. These two principles are, are a strong tension of the Christian faith. We do not um, have the power to do the Christian life alone, right? We can't just try harder and do better. But it's also true that we don't just sit and say, dear Jesus, uh, zap me and make me perfect, right? There is God working in us, and then we work out our own um, Christianity, our own battles. So his work in us and our work, and these two uh, pieces work together in our Christian life. Verse 13 reminds us a whole great deal of chapter 1, verse 6. Look over at chapter 1, verse 6 with me, if you would. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. See that? His work in us. Verse 13 says very much the same thing. We might remember Paul's words in Galatians 2.20. Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Um, as God works in us, he is working in us that we will will and do of his good pleasure. You know what the word will means? It means to wish, to want, to desire. God is working to give you the right desires. And God is working to give you the right actions. And this desiring and this acting are both connected to pride and to humility, aren't they? Because if we're going to have his desire, we're going to have that humble desire. If we're going to have his actions, we are going to humble ourselves. And we're going to take specific action to walk in humility. Both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This sounds like the master. The master's good pleasure for his slaves. That's exactly what the idea is. Now, how does he work in us? What does he use to work in us? Well, he works in us through his word. First uh, Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. First Thessalonians 2.13 So the word of God works in our heart. The people of God are used to work in us. Um, God works in us through trial and suffering and temptation, or I should say uh, trial is a better word. He works through difficulty to, to transform our hearts and to change our desires and to help us do right. Um, there's a, a verse in Psalm 119 that says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I'm forgetting that final phrase, but the idea is now I obey your word. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm paraphrasing that a little bit. But the point is the afflictions helped bring him back to that place he needed to be. So Paul is urging these Philippians 
remember the exaltation of Christ. And we certainly look to Jesus in the past for his humble example. But in the present, our humility is going to be built if we will remember where he is right now. He is high in the heavens. Every angel of heaven adores him. Every being of heaven loves him. One day, all beings in heaven and earth and under the earth will bow to Jesus. And this high exaltation of Christ helps us to humble ourselves before Christ and to live in humility before him. Then, in these final two verses that we've looked at, we see how the fact of his exaltation causes us to remember our position. We're the slaves. We're the ones underneath him. We're the humble subjects of this sovereign king. And therefore, we ought to work for the master, working out this deliverance from pride with fear and trembling, remembering that this is God also working in us, that we would wish and desire his desires, that we would do the deeds he wants us to do, and that we would fulfill his good pleasure. Do you know what? when someone is truly a servant, they're happy if they have just served the master. If they've accomplished that, they are happy. They're content. They don't need anything else. If that's who they are, if that's what they desire, and their desire is fulfilled, they're happy. And do you know that Jesus also talked about how service to him brings joy? And as we think about these verses, this idea of humbling ourselves, serving the Master, remembering how Jesus has been exalted, I wonder if we find joy in service. If we do, I think it's a sign that we're starting to embrace our role as servants. If the only thing that brings us fulfillment and joy is when we get what we want, then maybe that means we're still afar off from seeing Jesus high and lifted up in the heavens in his true position. I hope you'll meditate on your service to the King of Kings and to his position in your life here tonight. Let's bow in prayer and we'll take any questions or comments. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word tonight. Thank you for Philippians 2. I thank you for these verses about your exaltation. And Lord, may we even today admit and declare from the heart that you are Lord, that you are Master and King. May we bow our knees, both physically and metaphorically, before you daily to remind our hearts that you are King and we are the subjects. I pray that we will understand that we need to work for the Master and let this work work out our own salvation. Lord, I know it's a little bit of a difficult phrase, but help us to see the application in our life. I'm thankful that you are working in us. We rejoice in that. Help us to want what you want and do what you want us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, any question or